So tonight, we're going to answer the question, why is the world so messed up? Everybody knows the world's messed up. We just turn on the news. We feel it uh, viscerally. We, we know instinctively that things are not as they should be. How many of you wake up in the middle of the night with a sense of dread? Ever. I'm the only one? Okay, I'm the Okay, thank you. See, that's what happens. When I confess, then you feel safe to confess. All right, if Chris has those kind of issues, I guess I can say I do too. Yeah, out of nowhere, you just feel like not all is well. And perhaps it's spiritual, perhaps it's chemical, perhaps it's a bad dream. We don't know, but we know not all is well. So why is the world so messed up? And then why am I so messed up? I mean, how many of you have actually asked yourself that question? Why are you so messed up? Yeah, more hands. Excellent. I resonate. What's, what's the matter with you, man, is what I say to myself. What's your problem? Well, uh, I still have sin indwelling me. That's the issue. Now, we have three problems in this world. We have moral evil, we have natural evil, and three, we have supernatural evil. Moral evil is the question that we're dealing with tonight. It's we have uh, a problem with morality, what God defines as right and wrong, what God defines as good and evil. And we are attracted to what God defines as evil. We like the darkness rather than the light. We would rather uh, go towards the darkness rather than go towards the light unless God does something radical to to us. Natural evil is the idea of hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis. Uh, these are uh, lightning striking and causing damage. It, it's that the world is broken and cursed from Genesis 3. And then lastly, supernatural evil. This is personified evil in spiritual beings, Satan himself and his hordes of demons. And so we have evil in the world, but tonight we're just going to focus on moral evil in human beings. Why are we so messed up, and how does that result in a messed up world? Well, total depravity is what the doctrine or teaching is traditionally called. Now, if you're any kind of theologian, you know that this is the first letter in the tulip, uh, which is the five points of Calvinism. Now, if you don't know what that is, I'm not going to take time to explain it right now. However, January of 20, we did a message called Theology, we did a series called Theology Untangled, and I did two messages on is the five points of Calvinism, are the five points of Calvinism biblical? And so you can go back and listen to those messages from January of 2020, and I addressed the history of where these five points of Calvinism came from. Well, we're going to do the T tonight of TULIP, and uh, it's total depravity. So where, where does it come from in the Bible? Is it pervasive in the Bible? And how does it play out in everyday life is what we're going to talk about tonight. Total depravity is often rejected because it's often misdefined. It's often misdefined. The way we think of total depravity often is what's, what's been called utter depravity. Okay? Total depravity is not the same as utter depravity. Utter depravity is the idea that we are as bad as we possibly could be as human beings. And we know that's not true. We know that we could be worse than we are, right? You know how you are tempted, and sometimes you resist and don't give in. Uh, you know that there are people who could be far worse if given the resources and opportunities. So what total depravity does not mean is that human beings are as bad as they could possibly be. That's answered by being made in the image of God and what James 1.17 would define as common grace, 
And so we're not as bad as we could be, but the total means that in totality, we are depraved. It's our mind, emotions, will, desires, motives, intellect, capacities, all of our human beingness in total has been affected by the fall of our first father, Adam. And there is no part of us before Christ that is untouched by this fall. That's what we mean by total. We mean that the totality of the human being from conception is affected by sin and no part of you gets away. (laughs) You are totally affected by the fall. Now, we all know that there are quote-unquote good people out there, right? And they're not Christians. And so we see mothers with their children. We see unbelieving doctors and nurses and teachers and therapists who are seeking to do some kind of good in the world. We see generous philanthropists out there donating millions and billions of dollars to to give libraries and access to education and job training. There's altruistic atheists, meaning they're just, they're seemingly selfless on the outside looking in, and yet they don't believe in God at all. There's soldiers who sacrifice themselves for the lives of their fellow soldiers on the battlefield. There are honest bankers and business owners, and they're not Christians. And so what we don't mean by total depravity is all those categories of people I just mentioned don't exist. We know they exist. Some of them are our friends and family members. The way that we must think about those people who on the outside look good, quote unquote, is that they are in the image of God. And they still reflect that image in some sense, though it's shattered and broken. In addition, God gives common grace to all people. He casts gifts across all humanity without discrimination and even without belief in Him to better the world. That's how we explain uh, how people could be in totality corrupted, but yet still be on the outside looking in good. Now, let's look biblically at this idea of total depravity. Every human being has pervasive sin throughout every member of their being without exception. Now, in Romans, we've already seen this in chapter 3. This is one of the main texts in the book of Romans where you will find this doctrine or this teaching called total depravity. Now, I'm not going to preach this because Justin already did, but I'm going to read it and I'm going to show you where Paul gets all of his quotes from. So he's basically quoting the Psalms in Isaiah, and he's showing how every human being is corrupt, and that corruption results in no one being able to do good, and the highest good, seek after God and live for his glory. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, notice the all, both Jews and Greeks, the only two categories of human beings for Paul, Gentiles and Jews, all are under sin. Now, what we've said already about being under sin is sin is the deep problem of the soul. The heart is sinful, and then it expresses itself with individual sins like lying and stealing and cheating and backbiting and murdering. But those are sins. Those are symptoms of a deeper problem called sin, a corrupt nature, a heart that is evil that produces fruit. The root is sin and corruption. The fruit is sins. And all of us express this corrupt nature in unique and individual ways. 
all are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, and now he's going to quote many Old Testament passages. Paul being a master of the Old Testament, having sung all of the Psalms, probably had them all memorized. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All, notice the all, all have turned aside. Together, all, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one? Not even one. Where did he get that from? Well, he got that from Psalm 14, 1 to 3. You can go look it up for yourself. Then he continues to quote Psalm 5, 9. There, all of them, their throat is an open grave. Now think about that picture. Your throat is an open hole, and inside of the hole is death. Now, the New Testament enlightens us and says that each person is spiritually dead on the inside, and that death comes out in words and deeds from the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. Their, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, not reflecting God who is truth, but reflecting Satan whose native language is lie. The venom of asps is under their lips. One translation says vipers. Vipers is under their lips. Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Psalm 10, 7. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. Isaiah 59, 7 to 8. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, 1. And we know that the fear of God is the beginning of what? Knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline or wisdom and instruction. So the very thing that's needed to begin to be wise, just the beginning of wisdom, they lack. No fear of God, no respect for Him, no love for Him, no wanting to obey Him, no wanting to be under His rule, reign, and sovereignty. No, none of that. I will have none of your rule or reign. I will rule myself. I am God, period. That's total depravity. It's, it's radical autonomy, we could say. It's I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my own soul. I am the Lord. And this is expressed this way. I am the center of the universe, and everyone and everything revolves around me. It's all about me. And then the culture likes to enforce that by telling you in advertising, it is all about you. Everything's all about you. You deserve it. Have it your way. Do your thing. Be you. Why are you suppressing who you really are on the inside? Express yourself. Don't let anyone else hold you down. You be you. In spite of everyone else, overcome. You're the center. And this is the message we hear all the time. And even for Christians, we've heard it so much and so often, we kind of osmosis it into our own thinking. It's like, yeah, I am pretty much the center of the universe. Hey, don't you know who I am? I know you've heard of me before. And, and so we think ourselves more important than we should. And this is an expression of total depravity. Verse 19, now we know, we know that whatever the law says, the we I think is pointing to the Jews there in verse 9, are we Jews any better off? Now we know, Paul says, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, specifically the Jewish people. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world 
may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So only through the do's and don'ts of the Bible comes the knowledge that you are corrupt and not doing good. That's what the law does. It's a mirror to show you your sin. It shows you your need for mercy, grace, and forgiveness. It doesn't have any power or ability to enable you to do the good that it demands. It simply is a condemnation tool that God uses to convict you that you might run to Him for salvation. Now, the, the sinful corruption comes to us when? Is it when we commit our first sin, when we're two, three, four? Maybe there's, there's this ancient concept of the age of accountability, maybe like 9, 10, 11, 12, when you commit that first sin. Is that when you're, you begin to corrupt? Now, the Bible actually tells us when you become corrupt. Conception. Psalm 51, David is writing uh, after Nathan the prophet confronts him about his sin with Bathsheba. And so he writes Psalm 51 as a sinful uh, repentance response. And in, and in verse 5, he says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, I like the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. The way it translates this is so helpful and clarifying. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. And then I don't, I don't always quote the NLT, but I think it's helpful here. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Now, the question we have to ask about this is, how does this happen? I mean, how, how, did, the, how did we get into this mess that when we are conceived, we are sinners? Well, the answer is found in Genesis, and, and I'll just summarize for you. We were created perfect. Our first father, Adam, had no corruption in him at all. And he had what most of us would call free will. He had the choice to choose good or evil. He could obey God or he could disobey God. Eve created the same way, with the ability to choose both good and evil. However, they chose to listen to the serpent's lie instead of listening to God's word. So they chose to place their faith in the word of Satan versus choosing to place their faith in the word of God. And God said, do not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then Satan counters that with, no, you will surely not die. No, God knows when you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And so Eve was deceived by the serpent. She ate and gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate, and the eyes of both of them were opened. And they did die in that moment. In that opening of the eyes, they realized they were naked. Reality dawned on them. I am vulnerable, I am in trouble, and I am guilty. And so fear, shame, and guilt dawned upon them for the first time. And so they were afraid and they ran and hid from God. They were guilty and so they, they tried to cover up their guilt by blame shifting. When God confronted them, Adam, where are you? 
Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? Well, the woman. And then the woman said, well, the snake. And so they try to shift blame, but they know they're guilty. And then the shame is they they cover themselves. They realize they're naked. They don't want to be seen in their guilt. And so they're afraid they cover themselves. Now, the next two children that we have knowledge of in the Bible are who? Who were their children? Next chapter of Genesis after the fall, Cain and Abel. What happened to those two guys? A murder happens. Okay? And, and, and the death just begins to unfold from there, does it not? And then we, we, if we move to Genesis 6, not, not very far from the fall in Genesis 3, we read this in Genesis 6, 5. Listen, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, that, that is a condemning state of affairs right there. This is how corrupt the earth had become only three chapters after the fall. <laughs> and so what does God do? He has grace on one. He has a chosen Messiah-like figure. His name is Noah. In fact, in 6.8 we see, but Noah found favor. That word can and I think should be translated grace in the eyes of the Lord or Yahweh. So Noah, after, so verse 9, if you know it well, it says Noah was a righteous man, more righteous than anyone else. But look what came before the righteousness. Grace. God's help, God's favor, God's unearned blessing. Grace must follow righteousness. It's not that Noah was righteous in and of himself, and so then he found grace from God. That's not the way it ever works in the Bible. No, Noah found grace in God's sight, and he lived out righteousness on the earth. And God used him as a Messiah figure to save the world. Ironically, or purposefully, through wood. A wooden vessel would save the world through a Messiah. Sound like some other story you might have heard of? Maybe. So Romans, if we were to jump a chapter later, or or a few chapters later in chapter 5, we would see this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And death through sin, and so... This is what resulted. Death spread to all. All. All men. Why? Because all sinned. Remember, the, sin, the sinning is a symptom of an inward reality called sin. So individual sins are not here the problem. They are symptoms of a deeper reality called corruption or sinful from the time my mother conceived me. For indeed, verse 13, sin was in the world before the law was given. And and then he's going to use the timeline to argue this. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, why would he bring up Adam and Moses here? Where did the law come from? After the Exodus, Mount Sinai, God delivers the law through Moses. And so he's saying... 
the, the proof that there was sin in the world before the law came was that everyone died from Adam up to Moses. And the wages of sin is what? Is death. And so he's arguing that everyone was born corrupt, and the proof is that everyone died before the one whom the law came through, ultimately from God but through Moses. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. What does he mean by not like? Well, Adam received a direct, clear command from God. You shall not eat from this tree. And if you do, this is the consequence. Well, there was all kinds of sin all over the world without knowledge of the specifics until the law came. And the law was very specific. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. It was very clear what you shall not do. Okay? But people were sinning without a clear description of the sin and the wages of that was death. Everyone from Adam to Moses proving that there was this passing down of the sin nature from the forefather, Adam. Now, what about the good deeds that people do that are not Christians? All those categories I mentioned before. Mothers who love their children, doctors and therapists and nurses who aren't Christians, you know, rich philanthropists who, who build libraries and parks and whatnot. We have all, this is Isaiah 64, 6 to 7, we have all become like one who is unclean. Okay, the unclean people were those in the Old Testament who could not come near to God. They could not participate in, in the worship uh, fest, festivities because they were unclean. And the worst of the unclean were the, the lepers and the outcasts who had to call out unclean so that those who came in contact with them would not catch their uncleanness. We have all become, so all, look at the all, we have all become unclean. And our righteous deeds are like a polluted that word polluted there, <laughs> menstrual garment. That's literally what that word means. Now, you remember the Old Testament regulations for a woman during that time of month. They were unclean that whole time. And so he's using a graphic image here of what our good deeds are like. It's a gross image, and it's supposed to be. We all fade like a leaf because of sin. And our iniquities, our sins, like the wind, take us away. Our sin is what causes death, is what causes even small deaths on the way to the big D. Death of relationships, death of friends, death of opportunities, death of health, death of peace, all kinds of death, sadly. There is no one who calls upon your name. No one? Not even one. No one. Who ruses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities that could the other other manuscripts have you have delivered us into the hands of our iniquities and so that that's consistent with Romans 1, 24, 26, 28. He gave them over to their corruption. He gave them over to their free will. He gave them over to the, desi the desires of their heart to go against him. And so God, in a sense, says to wicked people, sinners, have it your way. Go your way. Have what you will. Do what you want, and, and we'll catch up to you in the end. Okay? This is the sad nature of human beings. All right, now here's a question. 
When the Bible describes us in this state, human beings in this state, is the imagery that we are sick and need a doctor? Is the imagery that we just need some medicine, some antibiotics to, to kill this, this cold? Is the imagery that we are on a deathbed and we need life support to keep us alive? Or is it worse? Is the imagery that we are dead and without hope? Well, it's the third. <laughs> Ephesians 2 clearly says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. When the Bible describes us in this depraved state, it uses the image that Genesis 3 uses. You will surely die. Well, there is an, a sense in which death physically ultimately comes to all human beings, but there is a sense in which the, the corruption that we inherit from our parents is spiritual death immediately. In other words, there's no spiritual life in us when we are born. There's rather spiritual death in us. So we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which you walked. We walk out this spiritual death. Following, this is how it looks, following the course of the world, the flow and pattern and current of the world. We just flow right along with it. It's easy to go this way. The way is broad. And many are on that path, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the supernatural evil, category three that we talked about. Satan's in the mix, and he's enticing people, and he's tempting people, and they, without knowing it, follow him and worship him. And then we Christians are not exempt from that story, among whom we all, all, once lived in the passions of our flesh. So that verse 1 and 2 right there, that was us, B.C., before Christ. That was your story. That was my story. We were dead and needed a resurrection. We needed to be made alive, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's the sin nature. Another word used for sin nature is flesh. Carrying out, that means living out, practicing the desires of the body, the desires of your flesh, the desires of your natural senses, just living out your desires in the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all in this terrible predicament together we were all in big trouble. Now, there's an artist that I really appreciate and love, and, and, I, and I know him. His name's Shai Lin, and he has this fantastic song that I would highly recommend you all look up. It's called In Adam All Die. <laughs> it's a great song. It's very positive. How many of you have heard that song, In Adam All Die? It, it's a fantastic song. Here's a, a few lines from that song, and I think it, it captures all that we've talked about so far. He says, truth be told, we really have no answers for why we all fall short of our own moral standards. The evidence for God simply is bountiful, and it's illogical to think we won't be held accountable. A universal day of judgment approaches. Any rational notion of justice would presuppose this. And deep down inside, everybody knows this. But we disregard it because our deeds are atrocious. We prefer the vicious, our words are malicious, our slurs pernicious, we find the absurd delicious. 
depraved in our appetites, the things we crave are lacking light. Because sin's got us enslaved and shackled tight. And if we are to understand the fruit, we need to go back and examine the root. That is exactly right. The fruit of this corrupt nature is all of our evil desires and all of the problems in your life, friends. Do you realize that all of the problems in your life could mainly be boiled down to some kind of sin? Either you have sinned and brought it upon yourself or someone has sinned against you. And without sin, we would be happy, joyful, at peace, We would express only love all the time. We would be looking out for others rather than looking out for ourselves. The world would be much different. But instead, we have the world we have. And we turn on the news, and very rarely is it good news. And so if if the root of the problem is that we are born in sin, and then that Corruption, that flesh, that sin nature expresses itself in all the things we call sins. How does it look practically? Well, John 3 does not leave us without an answer to that question. What does it look like practically? So John 3, this follows the discussion of you must be born again. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This follows all that. And John is summarizing here the problem. And so he says, here's the problem. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Now, in John, if you know anything about the book of John, who is the light? The light. Jesus. He is the light. In fact, he says, I am the light of the world. And then later, we are the light of the world when we're in him. And so when the light comes into the world, he's saying Jesus has come into the world. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God, the light, has incarnated. He's become a man. And when he came, people loved the darkness rather than the light. Now, notice the love. That is the issue, friends. We in our corrupt state, have this love affair with what John here calls darkness. It's not that we screw up every now and then. It's not the problem. The problem is that we are passionately in love with darkness to the degree that when light comes to us and pursues us, we rather than run to the light and embrace it, we run from the light and hide in deeper darkness. Friends, this is why so many of you, when you're trying to protect your sin, you isolate and you try to not be found out and you try to hide it because you're protecting it because you love it so much and can't imagine life without it. You treasure and love your personal darkness like a pet that you feed and coddle and care for. Even as a Christian, This is the reality, is it not? And some of us look uncomfortable right now. (laughs) I love looking at you uh, because I can tell when something's happening on the inside. You know, the shuffling, the looking down, the... uh, It's like I can see what you're hiding, but I can't. I'm not prophetic. I can't see it. But friends, you know what I'm talking about. I can tell. We love the darkness rather than the light. And, and John's proof here, he's going to prove it by saying, because their works are evil. 
The deeds or the works that people do prove that they love darkness rather than light. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. So now we have the opposite of love. We have hate. So there's a love affair with the darkness and there's a hatred for the light. And we'll see why. And does not come into the light lest his work should be exposed. Because the works are exposed by the light. And we don't want the works exposed. That's the problem. Meanwhile, the New Testament would encourage us, if we're Christians, we're to bring everything into the light so that it can be exposed. Let me encourage you, friends. This is just a little bit of application for you Christians in the room. If you want to see a sin destroyed, you must bring it into the light. If you hide it in the dark and pretend it's not there and pretend it's not a problem, and when people ask you how you're doing, you're like, I'm good, I'm good, doing great. Meanwhile, you know, if you do not bring it into the light, it will rule over you. You will not rule over it, which you must do as a Christian. By the Spirit, Romans 8, 13, we put to death the misdeeds of the body, and then we live. Friends, your first step is to bring it into the light. Expose it, and you will be amazed at what kind of victory comes after that exposing happens. Now, it'll still be a wrestle. It'll still be a struggle. It'll still plague you. Satan will still tempt you with it. But friends, it loses its power once it's in the light. And when it's in the darkness, it has tremendous, almost magical power over you. Magnetic pool. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. I love that. Whoever is in the true comes to the light so that, in order that, it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out. How? In God. Now, this is the key, friends. Now we turn. We take a turn in the message. The only hope we have to do anything good or to please God at all is that last two words there in English, in God. If anyone is doing anything truly good, it is only by the power and enabling of God. Otherwise, even the good things we do, Isaiah 64, are not clean to him. They're unclean. And so now we, we turn a corner and see, okay, if I can do good then in God, how does that work? How does that work? Well, the first answer is, we miss something in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, there was uh, the curse on the man's work. It was thorns and thistles the ground shall produce from you. From the sweat of your brow you will eat bread until you return to the ground from which you were taken. Uh, for, for the snake, it was you're going to eat dust all the days of your life. To the woman, it was, I'm going to increase your pain in childbearing. And in addition, you're going to have this power struggle with your husband, and you're going to desire his authority and role, and then he's going to respond sinfully and clamp down on you. The way the ESV translates it is not so helpful. It says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And all the husbands are like, that sounds like a great curse to me. My wife's going to desire me? All right. Fantastic. I don't even have to go to the gym. This is great. The, the desire is not for you, brothers. It's for the role God has given you to lead the home. And then the response of the man 
is to clamp down and abuse and not use his authority right. He will rule over you. That's not good. That's not a good curse. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a recipe for disaster cooked right into marriage itself outside of Christ. And then if you know Ephesians 5, when the Holy Spirit comes in, Ephesians 5.21, the reversal happens. And there's a husband sacrificing himself for his wife. And there's a wife respecting and submitting to the husband. And then there's this love and respect upward spiral that can happen, and I pray is happening, in your marriages. So, what I left out was the curse on the snake is more than just you will eat dust all the days of your life. There is going to be enmity between the woman and the snake in this way. There's going to be a seed of the woman that is going to crush the head of the snake while the snake is striking the heel of the woman. Do you remember that? It's Genesis 3.15. It says, you will strike the seed of the woman's heel, and then in that striking, he's going to crush your head. Now, Galatians, Paul picks up on this. In 3.16, he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, I know I'm jumping into the middle of, of, of a book here, but the idea here is Abraham in chapter 3 is believing God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is the father of faith, and so all those who have faith are the children of Abraham. It's similar to Romans 4. And so all these promises of salvation, and specifically that God would use Abraham to bless the entire ethnos, all the nations, all the tribes, tongues, uh, people groups, all of them will be blessed through Abraham. And it's not just him, it's his offspring. Now, here's something interesting. Do you know what that word offspring is in the Greek? I'm sure most of you do, because you know, have your Greek New Testament out all the time, right? It's the word that we get the English word semen from, just to be blunt. And so it is often translated seed. Abraham and to his seed. It does not say and to offsprings or seeds, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, here's the connection, friends. Galatians 3, 16, you know, you know uh, John 3, 16 is a gospel text. Did you know that Galatians 3, 16 is a gospel text? The seed is Christ. And then when you go back to Genesis 3, it's the seed of who? Not Adam. The seed of the woman. Now, let's put this together theologically and biologically. One of the cardinal truths of Christianity is the virgin birth. Why is that important? Jesus had to be born without a male. Why? Because the sin nature, the corruption, is passed through the male seed. And so women don't have seed, do they, or do they? You see, Jesus was born as the second Adam, the one born without a human father like Adam. 
with no corruption. And the second Adam accomplished what the first Adam failed to accomplish, which is perfect obedience. Perfect loving of God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and perfect loving of his neighbor as himself. And then what resulted was he would go to the cross as a substitute, not for his sins, for he had none. He had no corrupt nature from which to have the symptoms of sins. And not only so, he resisted temptation at every turn. He was tempted in all ways as we are, yet what? Without sin. And so, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says this, for as, a, for as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, the second Adam. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now, here's what this is saying. Everyone finds themselves born in who? Adam, without exception. You all were born in Adam. I was born in Adam. That results in death. We must be born again in someone else, Jesus. And in Christ, everyone born in Christ, born again into Christ, are alive spiritually. And so we come out of that spiritual death that Ephesians 2 talks about, and now we are spiritually alive, but it's in Christ. Remember at the end uh, of Galatians 3.16, in Christ, the seed Remember the end of John 3, 19, in God? So God does this miracle on us, and he makes us come alive out of the spiritual death. And not only does he make us just spiritually alive, he gives us a new heart. As Ezekiel 36 says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll take out your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. In addition to that, I'll give you a new spirit, small s. And not only that, I'll give you my spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, so that you will walk in all my ways. And so God himself causes us to be made alive. God causes us then further to walk in his ways and to escape the corruption of Adam. And so the second state of us Christians is this. We have the corrupt nature still holding on. It's clinging to us like an old nasty garment that we're wearing. In fact, this is the imagery of Ephesians. You, you take off the old and you put on the new. You continue to take off the old and you put on the new. You remember that you're new in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he, she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so we are responsible to remember and to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ and alive to righteousness. So the Holy Spirit comes inside the Christian and he enables us to then live according to God's will, his revealed will, his word. And then we actually please God by what we do. We walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh and we glorify God with our actions. All of this could be summed up under the heading of love. We love our neighbor as ourselves, and we love God. And that expression of loving God and loving neighbor looks like righteousness. It looks like what God calls truly good, and it will be met with reward. 
which is a beautiful thing. And so I have three minutes left. I'm going to make you some application here. Friends, we need to own our sin. We need to take responsibility. And so though we were born in sin, and in a sense we didn't choose, well, not in a sense, we didn't choose to be born. We didn't choose to be born in sin. And so the temptation might be there to make an excuse and say, it's not fair. I didn't choose to be born. I didn't choose to be born in sin. I'm just expressing my state of coming into the world. And that's true. But you know what? The Bible would hold you accountable. Because your deeds and motives align with your state of being. And your loves align with your state of being. And so you are responsible because you live out your corruption. You live it out. And so we have to own it and take responsibility and not make excuses. Listen, Adam and Eve both made excuses and refused to take responsibility when God came to them. Friends, as Christians, this is the best thing you can do is own your sin. This is Matthew 7. You look at the sin in you and stop looking at the sin in others. You have a giant log in your own eye, and yet you want to do eye surgery on the sawdust in someone else's eye. You refuse to own you, and yet you're an expert in everyone else's sin. Friends, that's a problem. And you're not going to grow that way. You have a magnifying glass on everyone else's sin, and you're like, I'm practically righteous in comparison. I mean, come on. Right? Don't we do this? We, we minimize our responsibility, and you're like, it's their fault that I'm like this. And it's not your fault, is it? Friends, rather, own it, and you'll be amazed at what God can do inside of you and through you. But if you continue to blame everyone else and not take responsibility for your sin, you will be stuck in the same sin sand, quicksand you're not going to be able to get out. And so, do you know what the first rule is when you find yourself in a hole? Stop digging. Friends, if you're stuck in sin, stop digging. And what I mean by that is stop blaming everyone else and look at yourself in the mirror. Take responsibility for your sin. Take the log out of your eye, then become an expert in everyone else's sin if you want to do that. In fact, that's what the text says. Take the log out, then you'll see clearly to help someone else with the spec. That's application number one. Number two, ask for mercy that God will show you grace, help in killing your sin. Friends, you are not totally depraved anymore as a Christian. Isn't that good news? We, we, we don't think of ourselves as able to resist sin and temptation because we don't think of ourselves as alive in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, with the new spirit. Rather, we think of ourselves still as totally depraved. That's not who you are anymore if you're in Christ. No, you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you who caused Jesus to rise from the dead. You can kill your sin by that power. You don't have to live like you're totally depraved anymore because you're not. Paul does say in Romans 7, there's nothing good that lives in me. That is in my flesh. You're not only flesh anymore. You have a new heart. You have a new spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You focus there and you have power, friends. Not perfection, but power. Number three. 
Friends, we need to be humble. Did you know that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud? Friends, if you think yourself more righteous than other people, that is sin. Because you are the same as them, and without God working through you, you have no righteousness. So, so the way Satan gets us is he tends to get us to look at other people and be judgmental, not realizing that if there's any good in you, where did it come from? Not from you, not from your resources so you can boast and think yourself high and mighty looking down on everyone else. No, God gives grace to the humble who know that if I am good at all, it is because of grace and grace alone. And then when you're in that humble state, God visits you. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Pray daily that God would continue to change you into the image of Christ, which is what you were predestined for, Romans 8, 29. Predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You could have this simple prayer that's a daily rhythm. God, make me more like Jesus. And man, if he would answer that prayer, did you know that you would be a blessing to everyone else around you? Your wife? your children, your neighbors, your, your fellow church members. I mean, everybody. If Jesus would only make you more like him, you would be a blessing to everyone else around you. Pray that the Spirit would move powerfully through you daily. This looks like walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. So pray that God would live through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, let's worship God for what he has done in us miraculously, solely of grace, having nothing to do with you, having nothing to do with your energies or efforts or power. Our salvation and our sanctification are of grace and of God. And so we should be worshipful people. We should worship God for what he's done in us. It's miraculous. You didn't do it. He did it. He deserves the glory. He deserves our worship. And believe it or not, you were made to worship. And so when you do worship, not just singing, but living for him, you fulfill your purpose. You glorify him, the chief end of man. So friends, right now we're going to worship. We're going to sing a gospel song. In fact, it's called Jesus, Thank You. The wrath of God completely satisfied. God is not angry at us anymore. Isn't that good news? He was angry at us in our sin, but now we're not in Adam. We're not in our sin. We're in Christ. And so we have his grace and his love. So we're going to sing and we're going to take communion. We're going to remember what Jesus accomplished for us. We're going to remember his body broken and his blood shed as a substitute sacrifice for our sin. And we're going to worship. And God is glorified when we worship and we get the spiritual benefits. We get the sustaining grace to keep going. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity uh, to worship once again. Father, to sing, to take communion, to remember the body broken and the bloodshed of Jesus once again. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our depraved state, yet you had mercy and grace and compassion and kindness on us, and you raised us from the dead and put us in Christ. Father, would we not forget who we are and where we live in Christ? Father, would we not forget that we have the power that raised Jesus from the dead living in us? Father, give us 
more fruit displayed in our lives of your spirit. Father, move in us, I pray, please. May we be sustained by your grace to live another day for you. And I pray that you would lift up all those who are discouraged and beat down and feel weary and feel like they can't go another day. Father, give them another day. Show them your grace. Show them your kindness. Give them the reassurance that there is no condemnation for them because of who they're in. In Jesus' name.